2: You know, I want to enjoy more of my life because it's, I, I, my childhood went so quick because I was working. I didn't do all the things that kids did, but when my work turned to play, it was delicious. And now my work is constant play because it's allowing me to learn more about the world. I went to two years of college. I wanted to go to four. I wanted to maybe be a chiropractor or an archeologist. I wanted to, to steep myself in knowledge and couldn't afford to do that. So I'm an actor. By taking characters and roles, I've learned about the world, about people, about human nature, about science, about politics, about the way the world works. Some of which I care more about than
0: others of those subjects. <laughs> that was Giancarlo Esposito. I'm San gozo This is Talk Easy. Welcome to the show. Esposito knew what he wanted at age eight. Born in Copenhagen but raised in Manhattan, his father was an Italian carpenter and his mother was an African-American opera singer. Performance was always part of the equation. By the second grade, Giancarlo found himself making his Broadway debut in Maggie Flynn, a musical set during the New York draft riots of 1863. Quick success followed Giancarlo. In the 80s, he landed bit parts in movies like Trading Places, The Cotton Club, Desperately Seeking Susan. He was a working actor, making his way through Hollywood. And then, one night, a young upstart by the name of Spike Lee came to one of Giancarlo's stage performances. The rest was history, or perhaps, more specifically, bugging Out.
2: You almost knocked me down, man. The word is excuse me. Ah, uh, excuse me. I'm sorry. Not only did you knock, knock me down, man. you stepped on my brand new knock white Air Jordans that hey. I just bought. And that's all you can say is excuse me. Are you serious? Yeah, I'm serious. Yeah, I'm serious. I it's fuck serious. you up quick two times. Two times. Who told you to step on my sneakers? Who told you to walk on my side of the block? Who told you to be in my neighborhood? I own this brownstone. Who told you to buy a brownstone on my block, in my neighborhood, on my side of the street? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yo, what you wanna live in a black neighborhood for anyway, man? Motherfuck justification. Well, Because just <laughs> I understand it, this is a free country. Man you can live wherever he wants. Free country? Free country? Oh, man, I should fuck you God. for saying that stupid shit. Oh. Oh, man. yo, man. Your Jordans are fucked up! Man. Damn, man, you might as well throw them shits out. Them she did the boat. Man, they looked at it good before he messed up. He did this shit on purpose, man. He was even talking about your mom. that shit to me
1: so wild. Yo, man, how
2: much you pay for him? A hundred bucks. American dollars. A hundred and eight with tax. I give him a hundred headaches. Look, you're lucky the black man has a loving heart. Aww. Next time you see me coming, man, you cross the street quick. I'm out of here.
1: Yo, man, break his
2: feet. Yeah, take his bike. I should make you buy me another pair. Black Panther, look it's his, ass. Take his, take his ass. Take his bike. And you're lucky I'm a righteous black man. I you'd be in serious trouble, man. Serious.
1: Fucking hell. Ah!
2: move back to Massachusetts? I was born in
0: Brooklyn. Since his collaboration with Spike, Giancarlo has found success in both film and television. You probably remember his work as Gus Fring in Breaking Bad, a criminal hiding in plain sight. He was in town this past weekend for the Emmys and his hit show, Better Call Saul. When I spoke to Giancarlo, I seemed to catch him at a curious moon, the night before an award show that's supposed to tell you that you're good at the thing you put your heart into. At first, he seemed fatigued by the whole game he had to play the last two days. The red carpets, the sponsored events, the conversations with people you will not remember seven seconds after having them. And yet, after about ten minutes, Giancarlo opened up, ready to talk about anything and everything. So, that's what we did. Now, finally, here is Giancarlo Esposito. Hi. Hi there. How are you feeling? I feel good. Good? Yeah. There are so many places to start in your life and career, but in looking at it today, you know, you do prep for these interviews and you end up reading all these things and going through your IMDb and it's like you're inundated with information about someone's life. But the clear starting point for me, at least as an American, perhaps, is uh, 1988 when you're cast in School Days. And I wanted to start there I don't know how often you think back about the past, but what was happening in your life then? 1988.
2: Wow. I was living in New York in a place called Manhattan Plaza and uh, on 43rd Street and 10th Avenue, and it was an area that was uh, has now become gentrified, but back then it was uh, 10th Avenue was where all the hookers hung and where all the drugs were being sold and in midtown Manhattan. So you were
0: surrounded by that?
2: I was surrounded by that in my living space, but I was 33 stories up in the air where I could look down upon it. Uh, but Oh, from high up? From high up. Oh, good. But couldn't escape it once I hit the ground. <laughs> couldn't always be up. <laughs> yeah, couldn't always be up. But I loved that area because I, I grew up in the New York theater. That was, in a way, my stomping ground. It was. I lived on 10th Avenue, but 9th Avenue was... Uh, really wonderful area that had Italians and Polish people and they had the bakeries and it was really a neighborhood. And I, I love living there. I, I kind of kind of local little bars and I, I used to call myself the king of ninth Avenue. You did. Yeah. Cause, so you thought highly of yourself back then. You know, I didn't, I just thought I was just a guy who rode his bicycle to the Atlantic theater company and did work. I was a guy who could walk to the Broadway theater that was three blocks away and go on stage from eight to 10 and walk back home. Mm. I've always had this mentality that I think started there in that neighborhood that I was just a journeyman actor. And I was happy to be working on stage and having the opportunity to be in front of an audience every night for a couple of hours, which was sometimes it can be, it was great training, but it can be much more strenuous than even doing a film because you're, you're in a place where you have Uh, an energy to maintain throughout a period of time and folks who were sitting in front of you expecting you to deliver the play or the musical back then I was doing musicals back to back Mm -hmm. and doing seven to to eight shows a week matinee Wednesday matinee Sunday sometimes a Sunday night show on special occasions what was the money like the money wasn't great it was enough to maintain if I uh, rode my bike everywhere I had to go in the city and if I ate brown rice and beans, I was pretty good. You know, I was on a, like a macrobiotic diet back then, I remember. And uh, King of Ninth, Ninth Avenue. King of Ninth Avenue. Because that was my route, you know, home from uptown. Uh, if I worked uptown, I, I, I wound up working at the Negro Ensemble Company uh, during that time, which is on 55th Street. Mm-hmm. So it was a short little stretch of land from 43rd to 57th. That was my, um, my kingdom. You were making it. I was making it in, in a simple fashion and happy. Happy to be making it that way.
0: You remember being happy
2: back then? Oh, I do. Absolutely. Yeah. I was cutting my teeth on the Broadway stage at a young age and learning from other veteran actors and, you know, kind of bouncing the ball back and forth. That's what I look like. What I do on stage is you're, you're not playing alone. And I think it made me a, a, a good actor because it, it allowed me to be really connected to my acting scene partner within that very scene.
0: In those early years, were you thinking about what a career looked like? Oh, absolutely.
2: In those early years, I knew that I was in training, and I thought this is a good place to be for a young plebe. But I had desire to be on television. I had desire to be in film because it reached a larger audience. But it wasn't available to me because you had to earn that. So it took time to sort of break in uh, to that arena. I wanted it because I felt like I had the talent to do it. I had done a soap opera, very different than doing a television show of quality. Not Mm -hmm. to say that that's not quality, but it's a soap opera, so it's very dramatic. But coming from the stage, that's the natural transition. And you could get stuck there for years and never break out of that. See, back when I started, real actors didn't do television. Real actors did theater and real actors did film.
0: Mm, And look how far we've come. I know. (laughs) Unbelievable. (laughs) At what point does Spike uh, come in your life?
2: He came into my life when I was doing a play called Zoo Man and the Sign at the Negro Ensemble Company on 55th Street. And I, uh, I had come off the stage after a show and I would take about 30 minutes to come down and and someone said, this guy is here to see you named Spike Lee. Okay, and he just insists he wants to come backstage and hang with you in your dressing room. So I said yes.
0: At that point, he had made She's Gonna Have It. That's correct. I, and I think one other film? Just Oh, yes, that's right. Joe's bed
2: Barbershop, We Cut Heads. Yeah. You like that title? I do. <laughs> I do. Yeah. He showed me that movie to get me interested in his work. Mm, did it work? It, it did work. It was a good film. A little slow at times, but I enjoyed it. Mm-hmm. I enjoyed it. And so he came back and wooed me and said, Hey, I've got a script. And, uh, you know, at that time, now when people say I've got a script, I have to ask them 10 questions and is it good? what's it about you know, or refer them to my agents or managers and normally I don't. I take the script and it takes me a month or two to read it, and I go, "Oh, I feel so sad and then I have to give them notes and tell them to
0: you know work a little harder mm-hmm. uh, back then. do you say no and give notes often
2: i do I do often enough because I, I teach and I, I understand I like to mentor people and I don't want to say no without giving them hope for a better tomorrow because no matter how bad something is that they've given me to read, it's come from inception has been some idea. And if the idea is good, then I give more notes and I ask them to go in a different direction.
0: Mm -hmm. But back then you didn't have any of those ideas about notes or qualifications. You were just interested in what he had to offer.
2: I was interested in good stories and when he told me the outline of this story for school days, I was intrigued because it was a musical. And so I had come from a musical background being a singer and dancer on Broadway. And I thought a musical film for, you know, a young African American cat who had so much energy and who had been around film since his days at NYU. And when I met him, when he came backstage, he invited me to come down to see what he does. And, uh, he invited me down to Maxie Cohen's at first run features where I went down and he was wearing some white gloves, running film through a steam bag, you know, (laughs) (laughs) cutting and cleaning. And I went, Oh, this is really what you do. He's, I'm a filmmaker, but this is, this is what I do to Mm. pay the rent. You were immediately intrigued by him. I was, I was because he had an energy about him that wanted to tell the black story. And he was a little over the top in his fervor for that. I've always been someone who's come because of my background, who's always interested in human beings and never really took up the race card to push anything ahead because I feel like that is not a part of me. I champion African-Americans, I have an African-American mother and Italian father, but I love the fact that he was energetic and smart and knew and film, he had gone to film school. So this was his dream and I wanted to be there with him while he um, you know, made his mark.
0: Did you find him to be overly enthusiastic in the work or just before the work and pre-production? He was excited in every way.
2: Hmm. You know, prior to our filming, he prepared brilliantly. He knew what he wanted. He knew how he wanted to have it happen. Uh, I was particularly intrigued by his fascination with sports, and he would run the set like a good sports team, like a coach, in Hmm. fact. I remember Lawrence Fishburne and I coined him the coach. We just called him coach. Mm. So I liked that because it, it, it gave me a feeling of being uh, at home, like with a family or a team you're pulling together. I liked it a lot. And then he would, in the middle of a scene, he would sort of flip it and make it a competition, (laughs) you know? How would he do that? Well, he'd come and he'd go whisper something in another actor's ear who I was in a scene with, and we'd do another take, and then he'd come whisper something in my ear. And it would always be like, you know, yeah, kill him on this. You're killing it. Kill him. Kill him. him. Slay him. (laughs) So Uh. he'd he'd pit everybody against each other so that they would, you know, rise and raise the level of their performance. This is kind of brilliant of him. I, I think so. It's diabolical in a way. Very diabolical. You know, it's, it's completely diabolical. Mm-hmm. And in school days, that's exactly how the set was run. You know, we have, it, it, basically school days was the haves and the have nots You know, We had the nappy, the nappy blacks and the straight haired blacks. And <clears throat> I knew from whence I came. So I always felt like I had an edge because, you know, the lighter skinned blacks are quote unquote more intelligent and yet he would like to depict the darker skinned blacks as being more soulful. Uh, but they can be in that soulful space, but they're never going to get ahead because the smart guy is going to get ahead.
0: Do you find those characterization? Uh, those character, uh, need coffee. Do you find those character, well, I can't do it. Do you want to do the word for me?
2: Yeah. Do you find those characterizations? To be accurate. I do not. Not in today's world they were more accurate in the world of Spike Lee who came from Atlanta. And at that time, Atlanta was a burgeoning African-American community with many whites in central Atlanta. Now Atlanta is basically all black. Uh, but his world at, you know, Morehouse college was that way. So he, he knew that world and he came from that and he, he, had experienced the opportunity to be out with a fraternity and was not. Mm. Whether it was that he didn't make the line
0: <laughs> or- Which he would never admit.
2: He would never admit. Or he just felt that that was an absurd thing to do. This all came out within the movie. And of course, I played a fraternity leader, you mm-hmm. know, Big Brother Almighty. Julian. <laughs> we'd always say it that way he'd always say big brother almighty I know he loved both sides of the fence mm-hmm. he just wanted both sides of the fence to win not
0: possible not possible something I got from him uh, I interviewed him once before a few years ago and um, this whole idea of competition makes complete sense because what he makes you do is immediately be combative And if you are not combative, he will dominate the conversation in a way where you won't say a fucking thing. And uh, I quickly figured out that if I didn't stop him and if I didn't challenge him, it would be like any sort of sport. He'd run right over me. That's right. Did you find yourself on set having to be combative with him or or standing up for yourself? No, I I
2: did in a later movie called Do the Right Thing. but on Which was a year later. A year later. But on school days... I looked for the chink in the armor in the script because for me, I wanted to serve up whatever the writer wrote in a delicious fashion. And if I wasn't able to wrap myself around how it was written and to put those words in my mouth, I wanted to say it better, not to take away from the writer, but to add to and make it more comfortable and make it, yeah, make it more comfortable in my own words. So there was one incident on the set where we were doing a scene on the quad of the school, and it was a confrontation between Lawrence Fishburne and myself. Lawrence Fishburne and I, I should say. And I I just didn't feel like the, the scene worked because the dialogue wasn't great. It was okay. It was good. It was passable. But it didn't fit in my mouth. And I thought, I can say it differently. So in order to avoid any conflict, I went to my scene partner and I said, we called him Larry back then. He's now Lawrence. And I said, Larry, just go roll with me. I'm not going to say what's written. I'm going to go someplace else. So just go with me. And if we connect, it'll work. And he rolled the camera and uh, expecting to hear what he'd heard five for five takes and was somewhat pleased with. And I just said what I wanted to say it was very clear and it was dialogue and it worked and he cut the camera early and he was on a ladder with a bullhorn and he said who said that what did you say what was that what wait wait I didn't write that who said that and there was silence and there was 60 75 people on the quad and I said I did and there was silence again and then he said say it again Roll it. So he loved it, and it worked, and I made it out with my skin. I
0: was very happy. (laughs) Because the chance it backfires, and he's like, "What the fuck? Get out of here!" Which it did. A year later, undo the right thing. Undo the right thing. So what happened?
2: You know, I I had um, a scene with Joa Lee, his sister, who she came to me and said, "The scene doesn't work for me. The dialogue doesn't fit in my mouth." Almost exactly what I had said to Lawrence. And I said, so change it. Oh, no, you know, Spike's gonna, he'll kill me for that. He, you know, I can't do that. I said, just do it. We just do it. You know, it's only film. You know, so just say what you want. No, I can't. So I said, okay, I pulled her aside. We had a 15 minute break. I said, let's rewrite it. And we did. And we came back. He rolled the camera. We rewrote it. And Spike, we were talking like 60 seconds into it. Cut. This time, Giancarlo, Giancarlo, man, what, what are you doing, man? What are you doing? Like, th- I didn't write that. I didn't write that. And I said, well, and Joa stayed silent. I said, well, it didn't quite flow when we were both trying to figure out how to make it flow to make it work. Nah, nah, nah. Nah, it's, it's too expository. Too expo- Just say the lines. Just say the lines. And he walked away. And it was, and Joie smirked at me. I took all the heat and uh, we had to go back to his dialogue and say what he wrote.
0: What were the lines?
2: You know, I wish I could remember, you know. I'm trying to remember. It's a scene on the street Mm -hmm. with me and Joie. Right. I can't really pick it up again. So so it didn't quite work. It didn't quite work. And I think in the film, he he made it work. It cut it together just fine. I kind of blanked it out because I felt he was pissed. I felt terrible. Joie, you know, his sister didn't own up to any of it. It was all on her, Mm -hmm. so she just sighed and went, "Oh, okay, we just do it the way it was." You know, she just, you know, caved. But it it taught me to be honorable and honest with what I wanted to do. But he's the writer director, and have to honor him uh, because that this is his piece, and I'm sort of that person who's supposed to serve it up that way but it also taught me that it is too late to do that right on camera even though back then we were in an improvisational situation he oftentimes wanted that to happen Mm. but i caught him on a bad day
0: the film has now found its place in some monumental canon of, of of cinema history whatever that term is it's often considered one of the top 100 movies ever made. It's interesting when I ask people about working on projects of that stature. Did it feel like something significant at the time?
2: It did. It didn't feel like it when we began. But the whole nature of, of taking a whole block in bed Brooklyn Brooklyn, kicking all the crack houses off, the fruit of Islam, the nation of Islam did that. And having one family, literally there was one family left on the block. And we took over the whole block. It was like being on a Hollywood set. So there was that feeling that allowed us to feel at home. I moved essentially to Brooklyn while I was shooting it because I wanted to be, immerse myself in that culture and that society. I also wanted to be around African-American people strictly and only. But it, it felt like we were making a movie until we were maybe 10 days in. And then something special was happening. And I think we all felt it. I know I did. I felt like this has the earmarks of being a, a real gem, mm-hmm. and this has the possibility to change the way people look at things. Have you? That period of time we had Al Sharpton, you know, um, a very large Al Sharpton at that point in time, an intimidating, loud-mouthed Al Sharpton. Mm. We had Tawana Brawley was going on. There was injustice happening, and this was a part of the film that I thought. Um, was really making a social comment on its time. Mm. So you felt it? Oh, I did. How long was the shoot? The shoot was about four, four and a half
0: weeks, five uh, weeks. And I guess I just want to get a sense of what were the interactions like or the atmosphere like on set or when the day was over? Do you guys all spend time together and talk? Or would you retreat back home and... Get ready for the next day. Most people,
2: uh, Roger Smith lived in Brooklyn. He moved to Brooklyn to shoot the movie. I, uh, I spent part time in Brooklyn to shoot the film. No, we wouldn't get together and talk. Um, a few of us would be invited to dailies back at the firehouse. So there was some camaraderie there if we went to see dailies because Spike would be there and he'd be like, yeah. he see a take. No, roll that take again. Yeah. Yeah, John Carlo, kill it. It was just like being, he was a coach. You know, it'd be like, so you knew you were like, I'd check in with Daly's once or twice a week because I wanted to see if he was if I was making him happy. Mm-hmm. And, uh, or he'd, you know, go, oh my, my goodness, Fishburn, man, that's awesome. You know, he'd comment on it. So you felt like, yes, we did feel like we were part of a family without a doubt. And it wasn't until the end of the week that maybe some of us would go out and have a drink together or hang together afterwards.
0: Mm. You've worked on a handful of Spike Lee movies and I think we can move on from just talking about his work but the last thing I do want to ask since you have been in so many you have worked with him so intimately what do you think he has that makes him who he is Spike is an original I think he
2: is a provocateur I think he stirs the pot which allows you to think about what he's saying it allows you to see his point of view of where he comes from and how he sees things. I think he's a very talented filmmaker. In Do the Right Thing, he did a shot with the Lumacrane with Ozzie Davis and Ruby D. He and Ernest Stickerson, master cinematography at the time, wonderful director right now, went all the way through come from the street with a Lumacrane, a wide shot on the street, all the way through over the shoulder of Ozzie Davis into Ruby D at the window, followed her as she leaves the window and goes all the way through the brownstone, all the way to the backyard. I mean, come on. Like this was a seamless, beautiful shot that Spike thought up that was brilliant. Brilliant. So he was a visionary in terms of his visuals and provocative in terms of his writing. And I think he Wanted to be that partly combative nature of his is what has helped him to make his mark.
0: Mm. He also seems like he's a bit of a pain in the ass. Uh, He can be relentless. I wish people could see the eyes you made
2: when I said that. I had a feeling you were going to say that. (laughs) That's why I made the eyes. If I was on television, I probably would have farted.
0: Really? That would have been great. That would've been great. There's something unsaid that, that that you'd like to say, but you're skeptical. I'm respectful. I love Spike Lee.
2: He has he changed things for me and many other African Americans because we weren't able to see images of ourselves, no matter what that is, good, bad, or ugly. Mm. He created a space for that and he created it in an artistic way. And I thought and he exposed the, the division between light skinned blacks and dark skinned blacks. So he, in a way, his films are partly exposés. And in other ways, they're slightly heightened reality. And which I thought, you know, and I still think is interesting. Uh, A little bit heightened reality to help you get it. And uh, so it's a very different way of filmmaking, but it it is
0: unique to Spike. Did you find that you were interested in getting roles or or working with people similar or not maybe no one similar to him. But, you know, in the 90s, you move on and you have bit parts, ancillary roles and a whole bunch of stuff, you know, including Spike's Malcolm X and The Usual Suspects and their television shows you're on. It seems like at that point, post working with Spike in the early 90s, that you found your footing. Did it feel like that at the time? It did feel like that. You know, I wanted to be
2: diverse in my work. I didn't want to just be an African-American actor. To do, I didn't want to be just in the black movie business. I wanted to be an actor who was respected, but also someone who could weave in and out of different nationalities and could have a larger audience. And I found my footing in the 90s by, you know, accepting roles that were very different than I am, and not all good guys, and not all bad guys. But it certainly helped me to formulate the craft of acting. And it, it helped, you know, lent itself to me developing the, the talent that I have today.
0: The talent you have today is very often referred to as a signature character actor. I was thinking about it on the drive over here. What do you make of that term? A signature a
2: character So I was in the steam room the other day, in my the town that I live in, guy came in and said, "I really like you. You're a Criterion actor. <laughs> a Criterion actor. You're, you're, you have that old Criterion, old school weight and depth.
0: Mm. Uh, I'm hoping it means something like that." Right. I've never really heard that word used outside of talking about like the Criterion collection that puts out movies.
2: It, that's what I thought. I thought the guy doesn't know English, but. Um, Uh, And I haven't looked it up yet. I know criterion must have a couple of different meanings. It means something good. It it means something good. But I like that he, in a way, was referring to my work as being classical and having the depth of that classical communication that uh, when I think of actors, I think of Robert Mitchum. I think of older actors from the 40s and 50s who weren't really well, well Mm well-known but who were just the best actors you've ever saw. Robert Ryan did a movie called The Setup, which is just absolutely mind-blowing. It's almost like a theater play that takes place on one block. It's about an over-the-hill boxer who's going to throw a match. Mm. It's phenomenal. It's almost like a stage play. A beautiful, beautiful piece, which I really love. So signature actor, you know, I always, at that point in time, I wanted to be a star, not knowing completely what that meant. That meant I'd just have to play myself over and over again, and I never wanted to play myself, ever. Mm-hmm. I always wanted to steep myself in the characterization, the mannerisms, the intelligence or non-intelligence, the, the fabric of another character, another human being, someone else. I wanted to transform myself, that is to me what I always looked as acting at acting
0: was. And you think transformation and stardom do not
2: coexist? I think that what I learned back then was that if you were a celebrity or a movie star, you had to play part of yourself over and over again because that's what people were used to.
0: So so that people get a sense of who that is on screen. Exactly. They're like, oh, that's that person. And Look, Tom Cruise. You're still Tom Cruise. There you are.
2: And they're familiar with that. And they like you and they want to see you. And even in some acting classes I took, I I was told that people really want to see you. So don't lose all of you in the character because they want to see a part of you. So then I learned how to take the best and leave the rest. Take the best suggestions and leave the rest. Mm. But it's fascinating because...
0: Did you like that line of advice because it rhymes? Yeah, I did.
2: (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) absolutely. (laughs) It's like how I try to live my life. Take the best, leave the rest.
0: You You live your life in rhymes. I live my life in rhymes. Mm. Yeah, Yeah, it's seems like a lot of work, by the way. It is a lot of work. Constantly rhyming? Yeah. Oh, I don't don't know if I could do that. Yeah, where's the timing? Mm. There you go. Got it. Very good. Brought back. Yeah. You know... I think that idea of stardom certainly still makes sense now, but when you say play the same part, I think, you know, Cary Grant kind of played the same role in every movie, but then, you know, skip ahead a decade. It's like, Jimmy Stewart didn't do that. Jimmy Stewart looked the same in every movie because you can doctor his hair and whatever clothes he's wearing, it kind of looks alike, but he played different parts. So he was a star, so there, there, there is a variety, and yet there's a part of you, I guess, that I'm interested in, which is you really wanted to be a star.
2: At that point in time, I did, because that meant I could pay the rent, and that meant there would be more roles available to me. What I didn't realize then was that I was cultivating a career as a character actor, and that I really in my heart which i realized shortly after this period that i really wanted to be a chameleon Mm. i really didn't want to see myself in my own work i wanted to see someone else up there
0: did you want to be a chameleon or did you find that you were just better at being a chameleon ah i found that i was better at being a chameleon you know and i think that
2: at that time i didn't know that that's what would make me a good actor would be to be that chameleon because acting is play acting, but it's also lying. It's also hiding something you're, you're showing who that character is, but you're not showing who you are. You're hiding behind the mask. You're good at lying. Yeah, I have been good. I am. I've cultivated truth in my life now, but to be a good actor, to hide behind the mask, there is a lie. Mm. There is a, the not allowing you to see who
0: I really am. Did you find that approach to rub off in your day to day life? Yeah, yeah, absolutely.
2: Because the first time I was with some of my children, years and years after that, and someone stopped me in an airport and said, "Wow, gosh, you're, you're the actor," or which I said, "No, I'm, I'm I'm a mechanic from Detroit," and. Really? Yeah, yeah. I work on big semis, <laughs> semis. and, and then they were there, and, and the person bought my lie completely. Really? Did That's, I meet you in high school? No, no, no. Where'd you go to school? You know, and I told them, and I was just like, no. Nah, my shoulders slumped a little bit, and I walked a little slower as I walked away from them, so they could really buy it. And they were like, wow, I can't believe that. And but they believed me, and my kids just laughed so hard. <laughs> they went, wow,
0: you're good. Mm. <laughs> Ah <laughs> uh, yeah. See, so you told the funny and sweet side of that, mm. but I imagine. Here's my theory, and if my theory is wrong, I've said this on the show before. The guest is more to welcome, more than welcome to say you're an idiot. Shut the hell up, <laughs> and you can curse on this podcast. So f- feel free. Okay. Your whole career, you've played a variety of different characters. Pretty much all of them very well. I can't, I can't really think of any performance where I thought, oh, you missed missed the boat. You've done it pretty well for almost three, three-plus decades now. Four, actually. Five. But that was... I'm talking about on screen. Hmm. I know you had... Theater work. Fuck you.
2: <laughs> <laughs> it's four. I've been acting for 53 years. Yeah, so you're right. It's about, about uh, close three, close, verging on four. That's mm. right.
0: So in order to play the parts you have, I think it requires an emotional complexity and psychological complexity to pull those off. And I have to imagine that, I'm not saying like you're a serial killer, but I imagine the lying does factor into the equation in your life.
2: I believe it does. It's uh, I, I found myself believing myself, justifying some of the lies I told to family or friends, you know, or parents. What would you say? At that time. Well, I remember lying to my mother about, you know, being out late and stuff and you know, she would look at me and say, You know, I know you're lying hmm. and you can't lie to me, and I'd hold on to it. I would do everything I could to not let go of of my take on it, and i wouldn't you know whether she punished me or hit me. I just held on to it because i I had to believe it, and that was early acting training, but I realized <laughs> as I got older I, you know and started to really become an adult in the real world that that wasn't acceptable and i 'm still asked today by people you know girlfriends and you're such a good actor. Is this real? Are you telling me the truth? Hmm. And I say, yeah, I'm telling you the truth. Yeah. And I mean it because I realize that to lie to people on a personal level is not giving them the opportunity to speak their mind or the opportunity to make up their mind about me. But you see, actors want to be liked. They want to be loved. They want to be adored. You know. And you said, I've played my parts, Pretty well. I played my parts great. <laughs> so because as so so, I, I, so
0: to make sure people like you.
2: Partially to make sure people if people don't like me or didn't like me, at that point in time, I was crushed. As a human being, as an, an actor, I would go off the deep end. Because that was all that was my whole life's work and mission. Now I don't know, I guess as we get a little more mature, as I've matured. I don't care so much. It's part of what I've had to prepare myself for with my film that I've just directed and produced and have a major lead in opposite Josh DeMel, Famke Johnson. The show, uh, formerly titled This Is Your Death. It, it's, it's when I was finally told by someone close to me, my manager, Josh Kesselman, that, gee, I got to tell you this. People are going to love this or hate it. They might hate you for this. And I was like, oh, I was crushed. But I had to get with that. And then I realized, you know what? This is a statement on our society as it is today. This is a statement on reality television. This is a statement on people being led, you know, by, you know, their ear to their death and singing while they go. Mm. This is a the statement about no one standing up to say what's really true. So I'm okay with it. I'm going to get slammed and I'm going to get mixed reviews and people will really get it and other people will really hate it. And you know what? I'm okay with it. Maybe that's because I've become more mature and I'm not so dependent on what people think of me. Mm. So I can tell a little more of the truth. And when you're young and you want people to like you, you do a couple of different things. You, I was a people pleaser person. You try to please them or you try to shock them or you try to make them laugh. Those are the ways to get people to go, you know what? That guy, I like him, he's funny, mm-hmm. or, or he's smart, or he's really sharp. I had a thought this morning, if I could, if I could only live, yes, I have a complicated way of going about um, thinking about each and every character I do, because it's important to, to bring that character to life in a real way for me and for the audience. But also, there is this part of me that's a perfectionist. That really wants to do the best I can, always. And that if I fail, I'm going to self-destruct.
0: You've talked in the past about how depression has dovetailed uh, into your career and life. You said uh, in an interview recently that my mother tried to commit suicide once. My uncle committed suicide. And I found myself... At the wrong end of a 12-gauge shotgun at one point, thinking I should blow myself away. How do you reconcile with that?
2: You know, I think about it in a way that I'm glad it's farther away from me than just around the corner or just ahead of me, a little bit behind me. Uh, You look
0: at it now with distance.
2: With distance. With distance. And with compassion for the situation I was in in each of those moments and what that meant to me. And the realization that I struggle with keeping a level head when things aren't going my way. When I don't feel well. When I don't feel whole or connected. The only thing that saved my life is what I do. I was doing a film with Armin Mueller-Stahl, by a really wonderful filmmaker, Jim Jarmusch, called Night on Earth. And I had a horrible argument with my girlfriend on the way to the set. And we were shooting the film took place at night, so the whole thirty days. Well, I think I actually shot two weeks for it was. It was originally called L.A., New York, London, Paris, Helsinki. And uh, Jim shot it in each of those places, and, it, and the stories took place at the exact same time in each of those places, and it was always at night. And I left to go to the set. I went in, and we had, you know, we had uh, sheets that were separating the room out so we could have our dressing rooms. And uh, so I walked in and, and Armin, a wonderful German actor, was there and I passed him by and kind of nodded and he was my scene partner and along with Rosie Perez was in the movie as well. And I walked into my dressing room opened the curtain and closed it and went in and, and a few minutes later I heard a knock on the floor and I could see his face on the floor because the curtains were too short. I could see his face down there and, and on the way in he had said to me, how are you? And I said, I'm fine, I'm fine. And I walked into my dressing room and he came and he says, um, so, you know, I, am not from here. And, uh, I wonder if in here in America, if you could answer this question, do, uh, do, when you are, are, are not uh, fine, when you are not okay, is it customary to say that you are fine? And I, mm. and I immediately started crying and fell into his arms and we hugged. And he said, it's okay to say that you are not fine. I come from there, act from there. And he walked out and I did act from there that night, but it was a release of the truth of where I was in that moment. So I didn't have to carry it with me into my characterization of yo-yo. But what I realized in that moment was that acting saves my life on a daily basis. It allows me the freedom to, to create and be who I am. And that may be because I'm depressed that day. It may be because I'm not completely right. At that moment in time, I wasn't. So it was a freedom that I feel that I could soar within the limits of what the writer wrote, within the timing
0: of the camera movement. I could be me. But the main problem with this is that it's a freedom that has to be given to you. Yes. And it- What kind of freedom is that?
2: For normal people, it's the freedom to know that they are comfortable in their own skin which I always thought you weren't able to attain until you had more maturity than I had at that point in time that I wasn't deserving. And that comes from my family of origin and my background, you know, divorced mother and father always trying to people please to make people like me to be good enough to walk through the door without having given myself permission that I'm good enough just as I am to walk through that door. Mm. It's also the oppression that I allowed to be, to be put on me or I took on from being looked at as an African American. As Spike, years later, told me, Carlo, you know, you're an Afro-European. You're an Afro-European. So basically, you're not a full-fledged black man in America. (laughs) So so you really ain't good enough to be us and certainly don't look like one of them. And that was my struggle for a lot of years. And then I learned how to do a Spanish accent. I learned how to, to speak intelligently. I learned how to speak like I was from the hood. I won the Obie Award for a play called Zoo Man and the Sign at the, the Negro Ensemble Company for being just a hood, you know? And I went to Philly, I hung on the streets on the corner. The first time I think that anyone in New York witnessed a hat being tipped to the side or the back was from a character I played named Zuman. I had a Philadelphia Flyers cap, and I, I I was wearing it, and I said I can't wear it this way because if I wear the brim up front, no one's gonna see my face. <laughs> we we're doing a stage play, right? So I said let me just turn it to the side, and I bent it up and played with the brim, and I was like, yeah, this is the dude. This is the dude, and. You know, after that, they not only tipped their hats to the side and the back, but they then they started leaving the labels out of, like, which I thought was really silly. Mm. You know, the price tag or whatever that was. So I, I always wanted to fit in, and I never fit in black or white and never knew that there was a middle, you know? I mean, in school days, they deal with it. octamaroon, Quadroon, you know, half cast, all that verbiage is in that movie. I never wanted to be long to one or the other i just wanted to belong but in order to belong you know again we go back to having people have to like you and then i my mother said something to me that people don't have to like you at all but they need to respect you
0: and do you think people do that i hope so people call me
2: sir now i guess my body of work has determined that people think that most of the work I've done has come from a commitment and integrity and is good. Uh, and it, it's weird because I still feel like I'm just beginning. I still feel like the the role of my life is still of a lifetime for me. It hasn't even come yet. I feel like it's just the tip of the iceberg. I really truly feel this way. There's something coming that is just, that will take everything I've ever done and all of my preparation and commitment, everything I've done and it would just be shockingly phenomenal. Mm-hmm. It's still inside me. Still feel, I still love what I do. It's the same as it was for me now as it was when I did you know, my very first Broadway play. Feel that energy. It surrounds me. Because I'm willing to put in the time. I'm willing to, to go to the dark spaces I might have to go to as a character. I'm willing to not turn on the television or go to the movies when I work because I don't want to be influenced by seeing anyone else's work. I'm willing to be an original if that's what that takes. And I remember going to see the Fisher King. I was doing a film called Bob Roberts, Tim Robbins directed. I was playing a reporter named Bugs Rapland. I studied this guy, Danny Casolaro incessantly. He was a guy who uncovered a big, huge plot called the octopus and Danny had written letters to his family and prepared his friends that if I'm ever found in a suicide situation or dead, know that I didn't do that to myself. And he was found dead. And no one even knows what the octopus is, nor do I. But it was squashed by killing Danny, a reporter. So I studied his life. And I wanted to, you know, really honor him. By, and I, he was a white guy. Didn't matter to me. I wanted to just really bring out what that job entailed and how important it was to have people who wanted to tell the truth no matter what. And that's how I felt as an actor. I want to tell the truth no matter what. The truth of a certain story, the truth of a certain human
0: being. There's an optimism to your rhetoric now that uh, I'm curious. In 2008, you found yourself broke, Depressed, despondent. You had your fourth child, I believe. And you felt bad that. I think you said it was, uh, you felt less than a man because you could not provide. Tell me, how do you get here from there? You start
2: to patch the wounds. You start to forgive yourself first. Which is what I had to do, forgive myself for letting myself down, letting my family down. You suffer the loss. I suffered the loss. I suffered the loss of my home, not so bad. It was over my head anyway. You know, it had a pool and two colonial cut acres in Connecticut. It was comfortable, maybe too comfortable. But for me, I'd come off the road and be on the roof trying to patch the roof and fix this and fix that and putting off the pool guy. And then the lawn guy would come and Remember, he told me he made a million dollars a year. I was like, I fired him. He's a nice guy. He made more money than I did. I'm losing my house. He makes a million bucks a year cutting lawns. Maybe I should do that. <laughs> I remember being so pissed off. He was getting my good money to cut my two acres. Let me just go cut my two acres myself.
0: This is a great line. Tell me, man, a million. Fired. Fired. Done. Done. See you. Bye. Now you're making uh, 975. That's right.
2: You know, I suffered the loss. I suffered the pain of losing the opportunity to wake up with my children every day. My former wife uh, had told me if we lose this, you know, if all of this, uh, I have to go to with the girls and the shame and embarrassment for her was unbearable at that time. Um,
0: now, did she say she had to leave because if it wasn't this lifestyle, she
2: wanted no part it wasn't it was a combination of things, you know, I had cheated early in my marriage, that she couldn't let go of that. I hadn't come through as a provider. I think that was troubling for her. You had a 1.5 million dollar home. That's right. That's right. And uh so to get here from there I had to do a number of things. I had to figure out bankruptcy and who I was going to put on that bankruptcy. And was it going to be the fam, some family members? Because when you put someone on a bankruptcy, you can pay 10 cents on a dollar and you pay them off. And it's not any of what anywhere near uh, the amount that you may owe them. But when I mean suffer the loss, it suffered the pain of, you know, it's like taking the strong medicine and, and probably part of me felt like I needed to take that medicine because I, had made some mistakes in my marriage and the biggest, one of the biggest mistakes was infidelity and the other mistake was, you know, not being the provider.
0: So can I say as, as, as someone who doesn't know you particularly well, what mistake is not providing that implies that you were uninterested in taking care of others, which I don't think was the case. So maybe you're disappointed in that, but it's not like you weren't trying
2: I was trying hard and not coming through, but look, uh, maybe I should have been foraging in the woods. I, I lived in Ridgefield, Connecticut and the Pequot Indians were there and I'm sure that's what they did back in the day. So <laughs> you know, I didn't go looking for berries, you know, no. Could, have, pra- <laughs> could have changed professions. <laughs> yeah, you know, I, at that time I felt like there was something more I could do. And I was, I was beating down every door and every avenue to find work because I knew that that's what I wanted to do. And, Maybe what I mean is, you know, when I was young and alone, I worked in restaurants for a year. I drove a cab in New York. I drove a school bus, and I wasn't trying to look for that work. So maybe that's where I made a mistake. Maybe that's where I thought. Because people knew me as an actor, not like they know me now, but maybe I should have done something like that. So I I felt like small. I was shrinking and unhappy and unable to even welcome, you know, work into my life because I wasn't even in a place where I could conjure it up and and be happy in my being. So I felt, I felt terrible, you know, and and then the suffering started. Then, you know, the the family moved away. I moved to the guest house. The bank took the house, had to move out of the guest house, put my stuff in a barn and moved on and was a gypsy. Started to pick up some little work here and there. And then I got a big break, which was uh, Breaking Bad. How did that happen? I got asked to do a guest spot and uh, yet another guest spot. So you see where my head was at another guest spot for, you know, $1,500. And I remember like, what do I really need this? Yeah. Well, yeah, I need that 1500 bucks, but come on guys. I was unhappy with my agents and I wasn't moving up and I said no immediately. I don't want to do another guest spot on television. How about a series regular or some significant work? And then my manager said, this is the best show on TV, gee. It's going to be the best show. I really like it. And then I had spoken to my former wife who said, yeah, it's not my cup of tea, but this show is pretty fantastic. And and so I said to them, let me, let me look at it. And so I, I, I had them send me a DVD and I looked at the pilot and I said, oh, well, this is different. This is a little film, this is like a movie, this is not a TV show. This is something very, very different. And uh, I said, yeah, I said, yeah, I'll I'll do it. Then I I went and did an episode and I had, and what happened was you saw the optimism in my eyes when I talk about how much I love my work. Well, I felt that optimistic feeling once again because I felt like, yeah, this is just a guest star. So it's a letdown, you know, gonna go play this guy. It's only one episode. And in a way it's a letdown because I could come back, but probably not, but I had all these ideas for this guy. And I went, this could be an incredible character. And so I finished the guest role and I got on the plane to come home. By the time I got home, I got a call saying, would you come back and do another right away? And I went, oh, also oh, they see it too. And they see something. And I had great chemistry with Brian Cranston. We just, it was just like, we knew each other. And we weren't trying to steal the scene from each other. We were really trying to build upon each other's talents.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: So I went back and did another one. And then they asked me if I would come back in season three for seven episodes or po- possibly more is what they said. And I, I said, yeah, possibly. And then they wanted to tie me up. And they had a six-month hiatus. So they wanted to say, okay, come back for four or five and we'll give you this amount of money. And then I said, no. And I think they were surprised. I said, why don't you just wait to see if you're picked up and see if you come back? Because I didn't want to sign on to something that, that may or may not get picked up and not be able to do other work. That's what they do. They Mm -hmm. pick you up and then you tie your hands. And I, I didn't have, I didn't, I needed money and I loved the character. So I called Vince Gilligan to tell him what I thought this character could be. This could be phenomenal. And it all came from something he wrote. Hiding in plain sight. Has your condition worsened? Excuse me? Your medical condition. Has it grown worse? Not that I know of, no. Is there a ringing in your ears? Are you seeing bright lights or hearing voices? I'm quite well, thank you. No. Clearly you are not. No rational person would do as you have done.
0: Explain yourself. partner was about to get himself shot I intervened some
2: worthless junkie for him you intervened and put us all at risk some contemptible junkie who couldn't keep the peace for eight hours
0: that's right he couldn't he was angry because those two dealers of yours had just murdered an 11 year old boy I heard about it
2: he should have let me take care of them maybe Then again, maybe he thought it was you who gave the order. Are you asking me if I ordered the murder of a child? I would never ask you that. I went, how often do we see a character, a villain, who is one of us, we think, our neighbor, upstanding member of the community. I said, this is brilliant. I said, I really want to expand on this. I really feel like there's something here. And when they came back, they came back and offered me uh, the season as a guest player for a certain particular amount of episodes. And I said, I I would love to, but I really want to be part of a family. And then they came back and offered me 11. And I said, yes. And then, you know, we had to sort of make a deal to do that, which is out of their hands. It's with, you know, Sony, their partner and they, uh, business affairs and, What is your worth and your value? So the worth and value to me to do my work is I would do it for free because I love it, but you can't tell them that because they'll take advantage of it. Mm. So then I had to figure out what is that worth and value? And then they made an offer and the offer wasn't enough for me to even break even. And I said, what will I do? And that's when I first started really telling the truth. I said, look, I would love to do this. However, this is not gonna allow me to take care of my family. So here's a number that will allow me to just about break even, maybe make a little bit. And I I, I was way too fair then. Then I got too truthful. I should have said the number was twice that. But I said what the truth was. And they said yes. And I did it. And I basically broke even. But as soon as I finished the gig, I had to find another gig because it wasn't going to give me any space at all. But that was okay. And then in the fourth season, I did three and then in the fourth season, uh, I got a little bit of a bump and, uh, and then I was gone, you know? And that seems like ages ago because that was over five, six years ago, never thinking I'd ever return to that character because I was nominated for the Emmy, had a good ride with them and thought, that's it, I'm done. And, uh, and then here we are with, uh, the prequel to Breaking Bad and Better Call Saul and. And that went on for two years and never imagined I would ever, ever come back until, and then there was, you know, the rumors went around for the f- second f- second season of Saul that, yeah, they're going to bring all these characters back and they're going to figure out how to bring Gus back, but no one had ever talked to me. And then we, I finally got a, ha- a call from the studio head that asked me if I'd even be interested. And I, I said, yeah, I'm interested. I'd like these writers. Mm. And then uh, nothing for six months. And then a call from, from Vince Gilligan. And I said, well, I don't really want to do anything I've done before. I don't want to do this guy again. If it's the same fair, if it's, you know, and he said, I promise you, it won't be. W-. He, he has a beautiful conversation where he insisted that I created the character. I said, Vince, you created the character. You breathe life in the character. You created the character. You made it happen. You made our show. All these great compliments. It's, and I, I believe them. And he's, you know, he's a good Virginia boy. He tells the truth. And, uh, <laughs> So I said, yes. And, uh, and I'm back playing Gus. And I, I, I like what they've done. But you know, we agreed also that Gus is a slow burn. And I, uh, that's okay. In other words, the, the, the less we know about him, the more we want to know. And that's the key. You show just so much to get people to want more Gus. So I, I want to stretch out now. I want my own show. I want to stretch out, you know? If I'm doing television, let's do television. Let me go in every day, let's do 13, let me be the lead in the show. And you know, Bob does a wonderful job on uh, Better Call Saul, it's his show. At one point, you know, Vince was thinking about either Better Call Saul or The Rise of Gus. And of course, he had been talking to Bob and knew more about the Saul character and went that way. I've always wanted The Rise of Gus, I don't know if that'll ever happen now, because at this point now it's, so I did four seasons of Breaking Bad and I'm doing Better Call so I've done one season. That's five years split up. I, I'm not the kind of guy who wants to play the same character for 10 years. No, you didn't want to in the 90s. No, and I don't want to now. The lure has been 13. Let's do it. Six months in and out. Get me gone. Breaking Bad was fantastic. I'd go out, never lived there. I'd live there for four or five days a week. Get in, get out. They put my work together, get in, get out, didn't feel like I was chained to it, didn't feel like I was always doing the same thing and felt like I was being creatively in the process, moving my acting skills forward. I still want to do that, even with Saul. I don't want it to get stale. I don't want to walk through it. I want to be excited every day. I go in and I want to do different things. But when you're doing 13, you have the ability to go off and do movies. You have the ability to go off and do other shows. And I've certainly, in the last two years, man, you know, the get down, dear white people, Obviously, Saul. Uh, uh, I, I think I have Okja. I have all these titles on Netflix. It's been great to to play different characters. Now, you know, of course, I get asked to play a lot of villains, and I I, I want to say no a lot because I played the penultimate TV villain. Mm. You're describing a true resurgence that like you never felt before, right? Absolutely, absolutely. And then within that, I found the strength to not depend on Hollywood or depend on those I've worked with before in television and decided that I was going to make my own film. I wanted to play a regular guy, a guy who was down and out a guy who was less intelligent than I was a guy who was just a, a janitor, a guy who just tried to work for his family resembling my, you know, 2008, 2009. It just, I just want to work is the line of Mason Washington in the show. Mm. I just want to work and take care of my family. That's how I felt back then. I just want to be, and this guy has no way to make it. Every door is closing on him, and he has nothing else to do but to go on this show and to take his life in front of a live studio audience because that would allow his family, if he wins Best in Show, to live and live well. It gave me the opportunity to think, I can, by my own hand, and this is my second film, uh, by my own hand, create work for myself that will be that will give me the ability to take care of my family and my creative needs as well. You're turning 60 soon. Yeah. Yeah. I, I can't believe it. Don't tell me that again. You're turning 60 soon. Oh man,
0: you're brave. Yeah, I'm turning 60 soon. Just to bring it back here, I mean, where do you find value? In moments,
2: in the moments I cherish with my children, in the moments that I realize that it's time to enjoy my life outside of just enjoying it on camera or on stage to really, to find love again. Outside of just my work. I've immersed myself in my work for years. I'm happy in my work. Now, find happiness in the world. Find happiness in your relationships with people. I've been put in this position where everybody knows me, man. Airports, on the street, selfies here, there, autographs here, there. People reflect back to me. You know, when you did that scene, man. It's, you know, it's the way you did it, man. It's the poise that you had. It's the... God, It was just, you know, it's over and over and over and over again. And it's a way of me healing my ego, my personality. I know they mean it and I don't take anything away from them in sharing it with me. And I don't even mind hearing it again, even in those moments where it's irritating and I have to go because the car is waiting or the plane's getting ready to take off and they just want to share that love with me and tell me how great I am. It's a way for me to see that's their way of sharing their love with me. I want to find out how and continue to find a way to still be in expectation and wonder with my life in other ways. So I go to, you know, the Prada Museum, and where is that museum? And I go see the uh, the paintings when I was there recently in in uh, Spain because I love art. First of all, I'm not 60, man. It's, it's a, what is it? It's a number, yeah, okay. So my bones, they don't feel 60. I'm an athlete, I ski, I cycle because it keeps me outside in the wonder of nature. You know, I want to enjoy more of my life because I, I, my childhood went so quick because I was working. I didn't do all the things that kids did, but when my work turned to play, it was delicious. And now my work is constant play because it's allowing me to learn more about the world. I went to two years of college. I wanted to go to four. I wanted to maybe be a chiropractor or an archeologist. I wanted to to steep myself in knowledge and couldn't afford to do that. So I'm an actor by taking characters and roles I've learned about the world, about people, about human nature, about science, about politics, about the way the world works. Some of which I care more about than others of those subjects. (laughs) I mean, now I want to enjoy. I want to allow myself that space. I'm hypervigilant. I'm like, I'm like I've been in the war. I have friends who are in Vietnam. I'm, I'm hypervigilant because I don't walk with a bodyguard. I don't have a driver. I don't have an assistant. It's just me. And people say to me, wait, where are your people? <laughs> I got no people. <laughs> it's me. I'm my people. So I'm that, you know, really I'm a loner who has to find comfort and companionship with my children and comfort and companionship where I can find it with other human beings who understand what my life is like, other thinkers. You know, I read Einstein. I read Gurdjieff. I read Richard Bach. You know, I read Rumi. Rumi. You know, I'm a, I'm a dreamer, spiritualist, seeker. No one knows that part of me. I sit and meditate because I want to connect because I, I don't find the connection through alcohol or drugs anymore. I find it through good conversation, through great art. I want to be in love again with a woman who understands me who I can sit with in silence for hours and hold her hand. And there's an internal dialogue that goes on between us. And she understands what I've been through, what I want, where I'm going. I don't want to ever grow old because that's a mindset. I don't need to. I can be forever young in my heart and my feeling because I've chosen a field that allows me to play. So I want to play more. Those are my goals as I turn 60, to relax a little bit. I really mean it. I'm hyper-vigilant. I can see someone coming up behind me 20 feet away from the side. I tell my children I'm standing there talking to them, looking them right in the eye just like you. I say 12 o'clock, 1 o'clock, they're coming at me. They'll be here in two seconds. Just block for me. All right, I'm going to do this quick. <laughs> but that's that, that, that's a, that a that's a really... I always liked it when I was a kid because I used to play army and watch combat, you know, and you had to know everything and feel everything. And, and now I, I I want to feel everything, but I don't want to be so hypervigilant and so on my tippy toes all the time.
0: Time for you to enjoy your life. Oh yeah. It's been a long time coming. It's been a long
2: time coming. It started with Breaking Bad and the way I decided to work. I decided to use my yoga practice to allow me not to act because actors wanna act, that's what we love to do. We'll constantly do it, we'll tell stories, we'll be, we'll be animated. I'm already Italian, man. I, just, I, can, I put my hands on the table so I can stop using them because I always gesticulate. That's what I, I'm a, I'm a, I, just was, I just saw Joe Montaigne and we were on, we, we did work in the same circles 35, 40 years ago in New York. You know, and, and Joe looked at me and he said, look, you know, I, I finally got a gig that I want. I wanted to be in one place. I wanted a long run gig so I could just enjoy, you know, and uh, I, I started really listening to him and I'm enjoying now. It's I got what I wanted, but he, you know, he understood the old school days of always having to hustle, always having to get it, get it, get it while you could. And uh, with Breaking Bad, I didn't try to get it. I try to use my my yoga practice to drop me down to a place where I could look somebody in the eye and just check out everything about them and help me realize something. The only thing I can control in between the lines is the space I take to speak or not to speak, to answer or not to answer. The line's going to stay the same, but I can control the rhythm. So in a way it's very yogic because the yogis say if you have the breath and you focus there then it's a way to not allow the world to push you around because it gives you the space to relax and i've never been relaxed just not something i'm, I'm a go-go kind of guy i run six miles a day I swim 800 meters a day on a good day and I ride the bike seven miles before I can drop my body to be chill. That's after meditating on most days because I'm like, <laughs> but you know, you'd never know that from this guy, Gus Spring, right? So, <laughs> it's a different animal. Totally. But that's who I really am. People, you know, people run into me on the street and they say, oh, they talk to me for five minutes. And say, oh, you're nothing like that guy. You're kind of funny. You're kind of energetic. You're
0: kind of energized. Like, where did that guy come from? <laughs> uh, right. Acting. Acting. That's right. Well, thank you for uh, taking time to speak here, John Carlo.
2: Yeah, it's been a pleasure.
0: It's good to have you
2: on. Yeah, pleasure to be on. I'd love to come back at some time when I'm younger and less gray. So maybe we'll be able to hook that up in another few years. And...
0: Another lifetime. Okay, good. I like that. So Special thanks to Jillian and Tori at ID for helping arrange this conversation with the podcast. You can watch John Carlo's sophomore feature film, The Show, now out in theaters. You can also catch him on Better Call Saul, which is on AMC, and he'll also return for the latest season of The Get Down later this fall. For more info about John Carlo, be sure to visit our website at www.talkeasypod.com. As always, our show is executive produced by David Shen, graphics by Ian Jones, illustrations by Krishna Shenoy, social media by Max Shipp. our associate producer is Valerie Ettenhofer, and the show is produced by Dylan Peck. Thank you for listening to Talk Easy. I'll see you next week.
2: Enter now at T-Mobile.com slash unconventionalawards. See you there.
1: Live Nation presents Concert Week. Now through May 14th, get $25 tickets to over 5,000 shows. That's up to 75% off a summer full of your favorite artists, like 21 Savage, Alanis Morissette, Cage the Elephant, Celeste Barber, Dirk Spentley, Fade, Hootie and the Blowfish, Janet Jackson, Kids Bob Kids, Megan Trainer, Bissell Pluma, Sarah McLaughlin. Get tickets to more than 5,000 summer shows for just $25 until now through May 14th. Visit LiveNation.com concertweek to learn more and plan your summer with Sean Paul, Sum 41, 30 Seconds to Mars, oh, and Two Door Cinema Club.
0: You never want to find yourself out on the water fishing without the essentials. So it's best to always pack a Columbia PFG Solar Stream Elite hoodie to protect against the sun. I mean, it provides great protection and it's really breathable so you don't get hot.